1: Well, as we are in Samuel for our sermon text, we'll go to Samuel for our call to confession this morning as well. Back when uh, David is anointed, Samuel goes to Bethlehem and sees Jesse's sons. In the course of that, uh, God says this in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, "'Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees.'" For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Thus far the reading of God's word. The outward appearance there is the thing. God doesn't just check you as okay because you are physically here. He looks on your heart and knows whether you really want him or not. Where do you go to satisfy your life desires? What table has the menu that suits you? The Lord's table or the world's? We need to reacquire sometimes a taste for the Lord's food and renounce the world's dishes whenever they lead you away from God. Isaiah 55 says it well. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. So this reminds us of our need to confess our sins. Uh, please kneel if you're able. And I will pray our prayer of confession.
0: Let's
1: turn back in our Bibles to 1 Samuel, chapter 28. And continue the, the saga of Saul there. 1 Samuel 28. And let's pray before we read. Heavenly Father, as we've been reading in your word, you uh, direct us uh, to worship you alone, to turn away from other sources of guidance that are not from you. Uh, Lord, we do ask for this, uh, for the devotion uh, to seek guidance only from you. And so we turn to your word that we spend time in it day by day, an extended time hearing it preached on your Lord's Day here in worship. And as we do so, Lord, we are trusting that your word will not return void, but as we hear it, as we read it, your spirit is present, feeding us, watering us, cleansing us, purifying our thoughts, equipping us for battle, in the world. We trust you for all of this, and we ask that you would glorify your son, Jesus, as we hear your word once again. In Christ's name, amen. First Samuel 28, we're actually beginning at verse, uh, three, verse 3. Hear God's word. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah, in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists Out of the land, then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, In fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes, and he went, and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Please conduct a seance for me, and bring up the one, bring up for me the one I shall name to you. Then the woman said to him, Look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a spirit ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. And he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. Now Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called you, that you may reveal to me what I should do. Then Samuel said, So why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day or all night. And the woman came to Saul and said, and saw that he was severely troubled and said to him, Look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice, and I have put my life in my hands and heeded the words which you spoke to me. Now, therefore, please heed also the voice of your maidservant, and let me set a piece of bread before you, and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. So his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he heeded their voice. Then he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house, and she hastened to kill it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. So she brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. I have a little plastic camera film bottle that I've showed some of you before. It has some ashes and some charred grains of wheat inside I got them uh, when I was in Israel, in an obscure town in Galilee, uh, from the time when Assyria conquered Israel and took them away into exile. And the typical practice when you conquered a town was you'd take all the food or all the burnable things and pile them up at the gate and burn them. You'd have a pile of ashes at the gate of the town as the army goes on its way. So I picked up a couple of those ashes as we had a a bit of teaching on the consequences of sin. Israel had refused God for years and years and years, all the prophets that God sent, and he finally sent them into exile. So the consequences of sin, this is rather a sobering text, but that's what we see here. Rebelling against God will lead to lifelessness. Uh, Repenting brings life and restoration. Restoration. So we see in the text here, Saul is condemned for his stubborn rebellion against God, and we're warned against that. We see God purifying his people by his words of rebuke and admonition. So if you remember in the last chapter, David has fled to the Philistines, uh, to the king of Gath, Akish, uh, making him think that David's attacking Israel when he's really attacking Amalekites. And Akish thinks David's on his side uh, when David's really just biding his time against Saul. So now we get this, um, this change in the scene. And this is classic uh, screenwriting. If you, if you know writing and pacing, you notice that what the writer has done here at the end of verse 2 of chapter 28, you've got this cliffhanger. What is David going to do? Because Akish just asked him to fight in their big army against Israel. What's David going to do? And all of a sudden for a whole chapter, the sh- scene shifts to Saul. And we're left hanging. What's going to happen? And the writer's doing that not just for dramatic reasons, but also to point out the contrast here between David and Saul. And we'll see that as we go on. But keep David in mind, even as the scene has shifted to Saul here. So the Philistines come against Israel, verse uh, 4 and 5. And Saul is afraid. That's the emphasis of the text here at the end of verse 5. His heart trembles greatly. Uh, Saul is afraid he has pushed God away and so Saul is afraid of men as a result those two things are connected if you keep God close men will not shake you right the Lord verse uh, Psalm 27 is a great example of that the Lord is my light and my salvation whom shall I fear right the Lord is the stronghold of my life of whom shall I be afraid Saul's lost that Saul is afraid of defeat Uh, He's more afraid of defeat than of disobedience. The Philistines defeating Israel, uh, that's what's coming in the next few chapters. Uh, Spoiler alert there. The the Philistines defeating Israel doesn't mean that Israel has been unfaithful necessarily. Uh, I think it's important for us just to brief aside here. We have to get out of that kind of works righteousness mindset that can really beat us up at this point, especially when we read the news in our culture, see how, how uh, our nation, our culture seems to be going away from God, away from biblical values, uh, then we can conclude from that, well, we as the church must have been unfaithful. No, not necessarily. Uh, sometimes God uh, simply brings that turn of events about. Now, in this case, back to the text, Saul has definitely been unfaithful, and that's part of the cause of what's going on. But God can also bring us bad cultural situations simply to mature his people. Like I talked about last time, we need to avoid pragmatism, right? If life is going well, I must be obeying God. Not necessarily. If life is going badly, I must be disobeying God. Nope, not necessarily. Maybe, it's something to consider. But here, God is about to hand Israel a catastrophic defeat in battle but he's doing it to put David on the throne. He's still working his plan, even though to us it feels like a catastrophic defeat. So Saul's afraid. The Lord is not his stronghold. And he asks God, verse 6, for for help. It's kind of ironic. Saul's name actually means ask. To to Saul is is to ask. Uh, Saul asks, but God doesn't answer. Uh, Saul has been at this disobedience thing for too long and God is no longer answering. He speaks this way in the prophets as well, often. He, he, he says, I sent my prophets to you time and time again. There's gonna come a day when it's gonna to be too late and the exile's coming. Same kind of thing here. So, uh, God doesn't answer, uh, and there's some reasons for that too, right? Saul has killed many of the priests who would wield the Urim and the Thummim that's mentioned. That's actually gone to David. One of the priests took the ephod to David, Uh, David has a prophet, Gad, with him. Saul's been killing priests and prophets, so God doesn't speak uh, to Saul. So uh, this is something to consider in in prayer, and it's something that's quite controversial. Uh, We might ask ourselves, wait a minute, I thought God always hears us when we pray. Actually, no, he doesn't. Psalm 66, verse 18, the psalmist says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. We cannot expect God to forgive us if we only verbally confess our sin while inside we still love that sin and try to keep it. And that's what Saul is doing. Every time he sort of made up with David after David spared his life, Saul still clung to the throne. So God no longer answers him or hears him. God knows everything, including if you are uh, turning to him just to get out of trouble, which is what Saul's doing here. If you turn to, to the Lord just to get out of trouble, God doesn't promise to hear you. If you realize that you are more fearful of the trouble that you're, that, that you're in than of incurring God's wrath, then you can confess that to him, right? And ask God to change your heart, and he'll do that. That's the kind of prayer he promises to answer. There's always hope in that, even if we see that we can't do it. We can always turn to God and he will give mercy. So that's Saul's situation. He's asking God for help. God is not answering. So again, the contrast between David and Saul, notice. David is in uh, Gath. He's in uh, Philistine territory, caught among Philistines, not quite sure what to do, you know, this is often our cultural situation. We're surrounded by people who care nothing for the Lord, asking us to do some crazy things. What are we going to do? But David has the word of God. He's got a prophet named Gad. He's got the ephod with the Urim and Thummim. He talks to God. He finds his strength in God. Saul, on the other hand, leads Israel. But God has left him. Which one is worse? worse. It's much worse for Saul to. He comes out and says it. It's fascinating. Uh, He says it to Samuel in verse 15, I think it is. God has departed from me. It's verse 16. God has left me. Far better to be a lowly, uh, not known Christian who has the word of God than to have lots of cultural influence like Saul does. And have God not with you. Saul then, verse 7, turns to a medium. He is desperate. He has outlawed these mediums as he uh, should do, which we read in Deuteronomy 18. A medium is someone who calls up the dead. The medium means they're in between. They're in between this world and the next world. That's the idea. A spiritist is a similar uh, phrase. One familiar with the spiritual realm. This is dealing with black magic. Uh, Maybe some of your translations use the word necromancer. Uh, Again, that's somebody who's dealing with the dead. That's what this person is. They're in Endor, which is a town given to Israel, but the Canaanites were not driven out, uh, Joshua 17 tells us. So Saul's servants know where she is, which really fascinates me. Right, Saul has said drive them out of the land but his advisors, his cabinet they haven't enforced his law and they know right where she is they, they, they know before he asks it seems so Saul's advisors are like him they're not doing what God wants they're not removing such people from the land Saul didn't get rid of the Amalekites like he should Saul's advisors are following suit they're tolerating things they shouldn't tolerate that was Endor that was Saul. Uh, that can be the church, too, compromising with the spirit of the age. I see that even today as I listen to podcasts, read articles. Uh, even conservative voices amongst us in the church uh, often will take up the pet topics of, of the woke these days. Uh, it's, it's somewhat discouraging. We indulge our lusts, we squander our time, we build our lives around ourselves instead of serving God's people. There's, there's a, numerous ways in which we compromise our witness and Saul and his advisors are doing it here. Saul goes to ask Samuel. What he wants to do is hear from Samuel. Uh, Samuel's kind of been the, the anchor of Israel uh, the whole time he was alive. So he goes in secret, disguised clothes, goes by night, Doesn't tell her who to call up right away. This is all incognito. She herself points out his inconsistency, how this is putting her in danger. And so Saul swears by Yahweh's name. Notice the moral confusion. He swears by Yahweh that that nothing bad will happen to her. Saul's disobeying God in this whole inquiry by promising not to punish her. God's word commands Saul to punish her. But instead he's seeking benefit from her sin. So here the contrast is, is in Saul's desire. He's, he's wanting the wrong thing, right? Saul needed God, but he seeks Samuel. Saul wants instructions for victory. That's what he says at the end. Tell me what to do. But his first need is for repentance and for communion with God. His first need is to get right with God. But he doesn't want that. He doesn't want to do that. He just wants instructions for victory. Maybe Samuel will help me, even though he's dead. So you see all the confusion going on here. Why would Samuel say something other than what God says? Saul's uh, uh, forgetting that and, and very confused and misguided. That's what happens to our thoughts as our will turns away from God. When we are rebellious against God, then we get in our thoughts our moral compass goes more and more askew so that's that's the picture of Saul now uh, the medium calls up Samuel or actually I think the way to put it is that God allows Samuel to appear to Saul I don't think in any way that the this medium forces Samuel to come back that God is doing that and she says she sees a spirit uh, and uh, how does Saul know it's Samuel? It might be that robe, it's, the word is mantle in, in the New King James. It might be the robe uh, that, that makes him recognize him. Uh, the last time we heard of Samuel's robe it was when Saul grabbed and tore it, right? And then Samuel said, the kingdom's going to be torn for, from you. And Samuel reminds him of that same thing again. So, uh, fascinating narrative here. There's all kinds of discussion we could have about this. It does seem to be genuinely Samuel. And so, I think it's genuinely God providing this. So, uh, that brings up all sorts of issues that we'll get to in a minute. Uh, So, Saul and Samuel have this back and forth. Saul's uh, pleading uh, with Samuel. God has left me. Well, Saul, you left God first. Uh, And... God leaves Saul way back in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. It says the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. But Saul doesn't complain about that until he's in physical danger himself. Notice. And that's a sure sign of a a selfish heart. Tell me what to do. How do I get out of this? Well, Samuel doesn't give him any good news. There's no recourse. Without repentance, there's nowhere for you to go. God is your enemy, Samuel says. I can't help you. God is fulfilling now what he said before through me that he would do. The the ironies here are fascinating. You know, I told you when I was alive (laughs) the same thing. So now you call me up from the dead. I'm just going to tell you the same thing again. It's almost humorous if it weren't so dark. So Samuel reminds him of Amalek again. Samuel was the one standing there saying, what's all this bleeding of sheep I hear? God told you to kill everything. And and Saul makes excuses. Samuel has to himself kill the king of Amalek. So Samuel reminds him of that now again. And he says in that point, if you want to turn to it and see, 1 Samuel 15, verse 23, it's quite fascinating what Samuel says to Saul with the Moloch has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices this is uh, chapter 15 verse 22 as in obeying the voice of the Lord behold to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams and then this line for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry fascinating Saul, you rebelled against me. And that's like witchcraft. That's the beginning of Saul's disobedience. And now here at the end of Saul's disobedience, we see him engaging in witchcraft. There's, there's a link. There's a connection. Rebellion in a little form. This is important for you kids to hear. That, you know, rebellion shows up in little ways, right? Mom tells you to do something, and you just don't want to do it. And you don't. And you get in trouble for it later, maybe. That rebellion in a little form like that, if it's left unchecked, that grows to great horror. And that's what we see in this chapter is the the awfulness of Saul going to a witch in Endor. It's important for us to hear as we have this text on this sensational sin. The point isn't to set this sin apart as especially bad necessarily. Uh, The point is that the sin you're harboring right now will lead to this kind of thing if left unchecked. So we have to be careful of that. It's a great, grave warning for us uh, to purify our hearts. Neglecting your wife, your children, pursuit of pleasure and fun every spare minute you have, apathetic worship and devotions, disobeying your parents, lazy, sloppy work, all of these quote-unquote little sins that lead to really big, bad sins. Proverbs 18, I like the verse that says, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. The proverb always sticks with me because it seems like such a small thing. I'm just taking it a little easy today. But that, that kind of laziness leads to destruction. So that's part of the point of this text to show us with a medium bringing up Samuel. Ah, what kind of abomination is this that Saul is doing? What, how did we get to this point? Well, Chapter by chapter, growth uh, of stubborn rebellion. Samuel began his ministry in 1 Samuel 3. Remember the call of Samuel? Uh, when he, God has to call him three times and Eli doesn't quite get it either? Uh, the very first thing uh, that Samuel, uh, that God says through Samuel is prophesying the downfall of Eli's house for not restraining his sons to obey God. And now here, in death, Samuel ends his ministry, coming back from the dead, prophesying the downfall of Saul's house for not obeying God. That was Samuel, bookend to bookend. Saul's response, verse 20, is one of remorse, not repentance. He's a lot like Nabal at first. Remember what happens when Abigail tells Nabal that she just saved his life from David he just kind of goes comatose says his heart turned to stone within him it's just said nothing and dies a few days later right very similar here Saul just falls full length to the ground verse 20 dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel no strength left in him and this is back to the theme that I uh, neglected to get into the bulletin actually the, the point here is that re- stubborn rebellion uh, lack of repentance uh, leads to lifelessness you're going to wind up like Saul just laying on the ground, can't do a thing that's Psalm 105 too by the way Th- those who make idols, they're going to be like them idols are deaf and dumb and blind and they can't speak that's how you're going to end up if you worship idols that's where Saul has wound up He's reduced to obeying the witch and his servants and eating her food. And sin will do that to you, reduces you in that way. So Saul heeds the voice of the woman, and he takes and he eats. That sound familiar? That's Eve in the garden. Saul is another Adam and Eve, another fall. Samuel had condemned Saul for not obeying the voice of Yahweh. Just a couple verses earlier. And so Saul turns around and obeys the voice of the sorceress. Wow. So if you want to know what repentance looks like, don't look to Saul for an example. I mean, if you just heard from the dead Samuel that you and your children were going to die tomorrow, that's what he hears. Would you eat dinner with a witch next? Saul is become such a miserable wretch it, it's astounding better examples of repentance are in scripture we have david in psalm 51 or, or later david prays to god let your hand be against me but spare your people right? but saul instead of david saul goes back to the camp and sends israel into the battle the next day but before he goes he eats a feast so uh, the, the woman kills a fatted calf, has unleavened bread. What you have here, verses 24 and 25, uh, at, towards the end, is a counterfeit Passover. Uh, you have a sacrifice that is a counterfeit Passover. We're on the eve of a great conflict here. There's going to be a battle the next day with the Philistines, just like Israel was going to leave Egypt the next day. It's, it's happening at night. Uh, that's part of the Passover as well. They're sacrificing a calf to what God we don't know. The witch hurries to make unleavened bread, just like they had unleavened bread at Passover. But instead of a great victory like the Exodus, there's a massive defeat coming. And part of the reason is because Israel's leader, the representative head, is eating at the wrong table. He's looking to the wrong gods. He's engaging in in corrupt worship. So the Passover makes way for an exodus of Israel. And in a strange, counterfeit kind of way, the Passover here uh, makes way uh, for David uh, to come to the throne, uh, to bring Israel out of Egypt, another sort of Saul-like Egypt. So Saul goes out at night. Last word of the chapter is night. And this is a dark text. And this is why we read from Judas, uh, the the story of Judas as well, that Satan enters him, he's eating at the table where Jesus establishes the Lord's Supper, but he is not really at the table. It's not just about being at the table physically, that Judas leaves and it's night. And so uh, the gospel point in all of this is that Saul is at is where we all wind up without Christ. This is all of us without grace, right? It's night. Saul is helpless. He's condemned. He has no, uh, no good word, no gospel from Samuel. And he's going to die the next day. It's all bad news for Saul. And uh, one thing we need to remember, why I read from Mark 15, is that... Jesus took this on for us, right? When he's hanging on the cross, the sun goes out and he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced even worse than Saul, uh, the fact of God departing from him. the, The darkness that that brings. Jesus took on that punishment. So we see it clearly here in Saul, how wretched he is how there's, there's no hope, there's no prospect for anything good. And Jesus was at that point, took that on for us. So uh, we need to consider this as we remember Saul. Who's in charge of this whole event? A couple of theological reflections here. This, this whole thing on Saul's part is all a defiance of God's sovereignty. Right? God is sovereign over the occult. That's something that we uh, forget, or that's part of what's so sensational about it, is we're trying to get, a, get away from God's sovereignty, right? The occult is an attempt to defy his sovereignty and get what we want apart from him. So strangely enough, as Saul's trying to get away from God and get what he wants apart from God, God intervenes and sends Samuel to a witch who is defying God by seeking to call him up. Saul's defying God by trying to find a solution to his problem that doesn't involve God. But God does this to accomplish his purposes, to condemn Saul. It's just like when God used Joseph's brothers, right? They had murderous thoughts towards Joseph. They sell him as a slave to Egypt. But God uses that to feed the world. He uses Saul's wickedness, he uses the witch's wickedness here, to pronounce his curse on Saul and to make way for the true king of Israel. So the occult is a defiance of God's sovereignty, just like Saul tried. It's a way to manipulate and control the world around you outside of God's will, right? Don't don't do that. (laughs) Submit to God's will. Uh, Another point we could raise is, is this real? I mean, this medium, was she a fraud except for this one time? Or was there something real going on here? It was for witchcraft in part that God removed the Canaanites from the land. We read about that in Deuteronomy 18. Worshiping their idols, uh, demons had led them into bondage. This is 1 Corinthians 10, Paul makes this point. Is an idol anything? Well, they're sacrificing to demons. Paul essentially concludes. They had led them into bondage, even to human sacrifice, seeking guidance from the dead, all kinds of evil. Uh, I subscribe now and then to Biblical Archaeology Review, and uh, they have found incantation bowls in Babylon with Jewish Aramaic writing on them. So we have actual artifacts with Hebrew writing in Babylon. So we have hard evidence of God's people in exile, punished for doing this kind of thing, still doing this kind of thing. It's amazing. Is it real? Well, it it was really done and attempted, we know. They were used to, these bowls are used to move spirits to call up the dead, curse enemies, attract a mate, uh, all kinds of various things. This is what the kind of thing the witch of Endor would have used. And it's the same setting. You have a mixture of Canaanites and Jews where the Jews are enticed by this paganism instead of stamping it out. And these kind of things are alive and well in the world today. People reverence the sun and moon. They observe solstices religiously. They seek guidance from the stars. They flirt with crystals, magic, and spells to get what they want. They sell some of these kinds of things just a couple of blocks from here. These things happen. When you come across this kind of thing, one of two things is happening. Either they're playing with it and nothing's really happening, or there are spiritual powers at work manipulating those who think they're doing the manipulating. Right? Usually there's someone there with some intent to be anti-God who has turned away from God and is seeking power in something else. And then you have trouble. So, yes, I think witchcraft is real in that sense. We don't need to see a demon behind every sin, and we don't want to tremble at Satan's rage, but neither do we want to find ourselves partaking at the table of demons. Uh, Last uh, point before I uh, wrap up, and this might seem kind of separate, and maybe it's a non-issue to some of you, but I find it an interesting one. It's the whole issue of magic in the world today, not so much in witchcraft, but in our literature, right? We, we deal with magic in, in some of the books that we read. Uh, some people would say that we have no business imagining a world that contradicts the Bible. If the Bible says no magic, then don't write a story that's got magic in it. That's a simple and kind of compelling argument. Uh, and in response, I'd agree that it would be bad to delight in a storyline where some other sin is a celebrated norm. Right? A homosexual character who's held up as virtuous and so on. Well, yeah, that, that's a problem. But the catch is that magic isn't the same kind of problem. Because magic is the perfect literary device to allude to unseen spiritual powers. Whether they're good or evil. It happens all the time. Uh, Satan and his minions wage warfare against us with no physical exertion of force. Right? Second Kings 6, Elisha's servant couldn't see the chariots of fire all around the city, for example. So one way to portray this reality, uh, to remove the materialistic, the rationalistic blinders that we moderns have on, is stories like Narnia or, or the Lord of the Rings, where the magic is, is depicting spiritual power and reality. It's uh, quite a, a powerful Literary device. So, uh, you know, we we can consider further things like Harry Potter and uh, other works of fiction like those. Compared to Narnia, Harry Potter's world is further removed from the biblical worldview. It takes greater discernment and filtering to read Potter. But the purpose of a story isn't to conform the imagined world as closely as possible to the worldview of reality. That's not the point of the story. Uh, the point is to advance the values and the desires of the hero of the book more. And you have in, in uh, Narnia and Tolkien, you've got heroes striving to stop evil through self-sacrifice. So uh, these things are interesting to consider. I mean, um, do you read Harry Potter or not? What's the, what's the value in it? You, you're entering there a fictional world where magic isn't forbidden by God. Magic is a secret academic ex- uh, subject, to be used for good or for evil. It's a different world than the world that we're in. And as long as your biblical worldview of reality isn't altered because of that, I don't think there's anything wrong reading it. As long as you remember, seances and witchcraft, they're not cool and fun, much less right, just because Harry Potter did it. So another thing besides the magic is just, that lots of uh, books written today for kids have unbiblical assumptions that they put the main character in some kind of ethical dilemma where they have to choose and they're both both options are sin but but yeah you make them choose one or the other and you have all kinds of unbiblical assumptions like that you have to watch out for not just on this magic topic So I would just say don't disparage the gift of fiction and miss all the rich biblical truth that you can find in stories like Narnia and Middle Earth. But let's leave that behind and face the question as we close that Saul gave to Samuel. And it's the one I always get choked up on and struck by. Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me, Saul says. So Saul is passed on as we uh, euphemistically describe death. And he says Saul and his sons will within 24 hours as well. What if you knew you were going to die tomorrow? Do you know you're not going to die tomorrow? What would you do? We have here Saul's response, a very poor one, and we need to consider what would we do I started by discussing these burned grains of wheat and warning us of the destructive consequences of sin. Uh, Saul's a warning to all who hear of him to not deal with God this way. Instead, we need to repent in thought, word, and deed. We need to turn to God, be loyal to him, seek to learn his will, to do his will. There's always a way out. Saul didn't take it, but we can. And Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it can't bear fruit. So Jesus did that. He was talking about himself. He died so that you might die to the sin that grips you. He rose from the dead, not as a ghost, but as a real live man. The first fruits, the foretaste of what we're going to be when God comes for us in glory and joy. So let's repent die to our sin, not take the way of Saul, but take the way of, uh, of David who repents. And let's uh, turn to the Lord in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, you've given us a, a sobering reminder here of uh, what happens when we turn away from you. For then you turn away from us. Lord, we thank you that you've given us, your people, here your spirit, your spirit, to not do this to keep coming back to you week by week day by day whenever we stumble sin, uh, rebel against you uh, you turn our hearts soft again back to you Lord we earnestly pray that you would keep doing this Uh, however often we go astray restore us to you that we might have life that we might have spiritual health and food at the table of our Lord. As we come to that table next, we do ask, Lord, for nourishment, uh, for uh, the things that make for life for us. Help us to learn what those things are. Keep us steadfast in your word. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. We pray as he taught us. Thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations wherever they have gone and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols nor with their detestable things nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children, forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Profound promises from God's word. This table engages not only our mouths, our tongues, it also engages our hearts, our loyalties. We're doing this to acknowledge and remember Jesus, his death on the cross, which we believe sealed our pardon with God. All our hearts, as we sing, and all our songs join to admire the feast. So is your heart, your soul, your body leaning toward Jesus here? God is at work in strange places, Purifying a people for himself, in Endor, he removed the dross of Saul, condemning him in the witch's house, at the table of demons. He preserves through fire the silver of his people here, feeding us in his house, at the table of the Lord Jesus. So let's give the Lord our hearts to purify further. He is looking upon it even now, sifting our intentions, our desires, Covenant with the Lord, according to his covenant of grace with us in Christ, to believe his word, to live for him always. We invite you to the Lord's table, all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. As we eat the bread and drink the wine, uh, you are acknowledging that you're a sinner without hope except in God's sovereign mercy, that you're trusting in Christ alone for salvation. So come and welcome to the Lord Jesus.